Um, so why don't you guys open your Bibles real quick to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have Bibles, you can raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're at. I'm going to um, just jump right in. What I want to do this morning is uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. We're just going to jump right in. We're going to read uh, a passage in chapter 6 beginning at about verse 10. And um, right after I'm done reading, I'll pray and then I'll begin to give a little bit of background on this. This is a, um, in a lot of ways, a very culturally incorrect passage of Scripture. And what I mean by that is it actually deals with subject matters we started looking at last week that in a lot of ways is very counter-cultural for at least two ways. Uh, the word, the phrase that we use to identify this, or if you have a Bible, it has like maybe like uh, little uh, titles at the beginning of each section. Uh, some of your Bibles might say this has to do with you know, spiritual warfare, but that's the phrase that's, in a lot of ways, very culturally incorrect, because what it does, the two words in and of themselves, in a lot of ways, uh, don't really sync well with our culture. So, for example, one, spiritual, because we're in a very uh, materialistic type of a culture, meaning not just simply we buy things materialistically, but we also view things from a very naturalistic type way. We think in terms of what we can see, what we can feel, what we can touch, taste, um, and things that are invisible, things that are spiritual, things that we cannot see. Um, our culture, our society mocks those things, sees them as being mythological, sees them as being silly. And so the fact of the matter is that we're talking about something that's spiritual. In a lot of ways, uh, it's just simply silly from a cultural perspective. But the second word, warfare, is another one of those words that uh, pundits love to hate, right? And when you watch news, I mean, our country technically, I guess, is in war right now. Um, but the reality is, is that there's a lot of people within our country, probably many here even within this church, that are, are tired of war. We don't like war. We don't want war. We're, uh, we, we want a world where there is not war. And so to talk about something that's immaterial and spiritual and war are, are two words that in a lot of ways are, are very... Uh, maybe offensive or uh, confusing or frustrating, but they are the words that we are trying to unpack and understand because what Paul is writing to us is a, a teacher in the church, in the early church, he's writing to us and telling us that we actually as human beings are engaged in a battle. It's not just any battle, it's not a battle necessarily against people, but it's a spiritual battle. It's an immaterial battle, it's a spiritual battle. So unapologetically, we have to just simply address the fact that this is what the Bible teaches. This is what people of faith or followers of Jesus have to come to grips with, have to really recognize and believe in, because this is what the Bible actually teaches, that there is some form, some shape of spiritual battle. And that's what we'll be uh, further unpacking and hopefully understanding here today. So today, let's just go ahead and read, beginning at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. I'll read down about verse 18. I'll pray, and then we'll get to work taking a look at this. Verse 10, Paul starts off by saying this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against uh, uh, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, 
and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having put as shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with, the, with the, all prayer and supplications to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. God, right now we ask that you would help our hearts and our minds to embrace what your word has to say about these things. Even though uh, they may feel very foreign, it may even feel very out of order, out of sync, out of orientation with our culture. Uh, God, this is what you tell us is going on. And we pray for hearts that trust you over what our culture even says no matter how smart or how advanced it may seem. God, you speak things to us that are incongruent with this culture. And we pray, God, for the ability to be able to trust you, even if it is inconsistent with how this culture describes things. So help us right now, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week... One of the things that we began to jump into in talking about spiritual warfare, spiritual battle, is that we have uh, what the Bible describes as an enemy, and this enemy is, Paul describes, is the devil, and his aim is ultimately to destroy, disrupt, ruin the good work that God is doing in your life, in the life of the church, but also in the life of this world, that his aim is really to upset, to undo to undermine, to ruin all that God is up to. So if you look at your life, if you ever discover that there are circumstances or scenarios in your life that maybe at one point were really good, but at some point over a process of time, over a process of circumstances, maybe it was over a process of sin that you had committed or sin that was committed against you, and this good thing that maybe at one point was good or felt good or sensed good, sensed to be good, at some point eroded, corroded, corrupted, became destroyed, became in some ways... Uh, completely, uh, you're unable to distinguish it now from what it was at one point. It's completely become ruined. Well, the Bible actually describes that behind uh, the forces of nature that are happening in this world are the forces of demonic beings that are seeking to undermine and undo all the things that God wants to do. The way that we described this last week was that what's actually happening is Satan, the devil, is actually seeking to sabotage, kind of the word that we use, sabotage everything good that God wants to do. So if you look at your life and you look at certain circumstances or areas in your life that you can say this has definitely been sabotaged. You have to understand that there's, there's a cause to that. Something happened to that. Now, it may be, like I said, sin that you committed or sin that was committed against you, but behind that sin, behind the actions of sin that was done against you or sin that you did against somebody else um, were influences, influences not only to influence that sin, but also uh, power to influence you to not forgive that sin or to not choose to move on or to confess that sin or choose to not to... Uh, repent from that sin. So there's influences, and that's what the devil does. He seeks to influence our thinking, influence our understanding, so that we remain in a status of languishing, as opposed to a status of thriving. 
That's what God intends. God intends to give life. He's the life-giving God that restores and renews all things. That's what he's up to in this universe. So again, if there are areas in your life that are broken and ruined and sabotaged, it's actually God's desire to undo that brokenness, ruin, and sabotage and replace it with healing and restoration and wholeness. And the way that God does that is by working uh, miracle and grace within your life and part, in a lot of ways kind of partnering with you to allow him to do that. So in other words, if, for example, uh, if the pathway to moving into that realm of thriving involves forgiveness, God calls you to, hey, forgive, even though that may be hard, but it's the idea of God saying, listen, the power by which I forgave you is going to come through you to go towards those individuals or agents that you need to forgive, and by doing that actually brings forth the potential of healing and setting you free. Now, in an ultimate sense, if nothing ever interrupts you on that path, if nothing ever, you know, throws you out of that path of destruction in this world, then that will ultimately, in an ultimate sense, lead to a path that Jesus described as death, ultimate death, hell, Gehenna. But in this life, unless that path is interrupted, you will go down a path where you will constantly just find yourself broken and ruined, and God wants to bring healing. This is what God is up to. This is why the gospel is good, because the gospel seeks to undermine and undo that which is evil, that which is wicked, that which Satan has influenced and brought destruction into. So by way of a little bit of review, I just want to take a look at this. Um, there's a couple of things that we looked at last week, actually three of which we looked at these. We'll go through these quick. One, the battle, our battle that we're engaged in. Again, it's not flesh and blood. It's uh, principalities and powers and the devil. Uh, spiritual beings. Now, again, that doesn't mean that everything we find ourselves engaged in uh, is necessarily a devil. It may be that the devil influences or the devil uh, has some sort of uh, a power or mastery over certain things, but behind even physical agents is sort of this demonic power that's at work. That's what Paul is saying. The second thing that we see is that we have an enemy, and the enemy is not just sort of um, um, immaterial. It is an immaterial being, uh, not an imp- impersonal being, it's actually a personal being called the devil. Thirdly, is that we also were reminded of the fact that we have a strength. So in other words, in the midst of this battle against this enemy, we are not powerless. In other words, perhaps in ourselves we're powerless, but that's not what Paul's calling us to. He's saying that if you're in Christ, you actually have access to power that is far beyond you. In other words, just like that, I don't know, cheesy song way back in the day, like the battle belongs to the Lord, you know? Uh, I'm not going to sing it for you, but the point of the matter is, is in reality, the battle does belong to God. I, and we, we may be engaged in it, but God gives us strength and help to engage in that battle. But the question is, do we believe that? Do we trust that? Do we trust that God really promises to do for us what he claims that he'll do for us? This is why Paul would say, he basically give two instructions. One, we looked at this one last week. He says to be strong in the Lord. So in other words, our strength comes from two sources. In the Lord, God, and then the second thing is comes from this whole armor of God, which we're not going to really unpack a lot today. We will in the following weeks to come. But these are the two sources of strength that Paul says are actually given to the believer so that they could withstand the evil when it comes against you. So the reality is, is that every single one of us are engaged in some form of a battle. If you're a Christian, you're aware of that battle. You're aware of the 
the rivalry, the tension at work within you, you're aware of the fact that part of you says, I really want to forgive this person. But the other part of me says, they deserve my vengeance. They deserve what they have coming to them. They deserve me giving them a cold shoulder. They deserve all these things. And there's a battle going on. It's a battle. And at some point, something's got to give. Otherwise, you get overtaken by that. And you're aware of it. But what, the, what Paul is promising is that in Christ, he actually gives us the power to overcome that battle so that we are not overcome by the evil of the devil. So what I want to focus on today really are the devil's tactics, the devil's tactics. Before I jump into this, I want to remind you of a quote that we read last week of C.S. Lewis. I think it's uh, appropriate just simply because it helps us, I think, in terms of balancing the notion of talking about spiritual warfare from two different extremes. Here's what he says. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In other words, what C.S. Lewis is basically saying is that there are two extremes that oftentimes people fall into. I'm certain that we've all met these two extremes, right? There's those people that see devils and demons behind everything. They're always talking about devils and demons that are really the cause of every little thing or problem or issue or bad hair day within their life is always has to do with the devil. Uh, That's an extreme. That's what C.S. Lewis would describe as the magician. They're always tracing this source back to some form of spirit being all the time at every circumstance. But that's one extreme. Uh, The opposite extreme is equally dangerous, and it's what he describes as materialist. In other words, this is the person that basically focuses on the devil not at all, does not see any type of devil or demon or spiritual war or spiritual uh, world behind the material that is influencing or causing problems within this world that's dark, that's devilish, that's demonic. They just simply ignore it altogether. And so what C.S. Lewis is saying uh, is, is that we often at times have a tendency to fall into one of those categories. So we want to be really careful to not fall into one of those categories the way C.S. Lewis describes that. So before we jump in, uh, I want to read a couple of verses about the concept of the tactics of the devil, the uh, purposes of the devil. So again, take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, once again. Here's what Paul says. So that you may no longer be children tossed, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to read 6.11, Ephesians 6.11, sorry. Put on the whole armor of God, we just read this, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We touched on this just a little bit last week. The word scheme um, is the Greek word methodia, and we get the English word method from. And so what he's actually describing is that the devil himself has a variety of methods or schemes or tactics that he is somehow put into place based upon, if you want to think of it this way, based upon observation over your life. So if you want to think about it in this light, the devil is one of the most smartest, a sociologist who studied your life for a very long time. The devil has been around for a very long time. He's watched mankind. He's studied mankind. He knows what the vices of mankind are. He knows where mankind's human beings are weak. He knows where you are weak. He knows those areas where you are struggling. He knows those areas where you may find yourself vulnerable, those areas where you may find yourself giving in. And he oftentimes plays on those things. That's what the devil does. Because he has tactics, methods set in place 
And again, his aim is not to age you or to help you or to support you. His aim is simply to sabotage everything that God is seeking to do within your life. If you were to sort of uh, extract Satan off the pages of the Bible and deposit him sort of in the 21st century world, Satan would basically be the worst, most wicked, evil terrorist in the world. He's not a terrorist in the respect that he would just simply behead some guy in television. All right, that's really bad. I think all of us, if you've seen those videos, you know how wicked and evil and horrible and horrifying that thought is. But what Satan does is he wouldn't actually behead that guy. He would go and find his wife and his kids and behead their children in front of him. That's what Satan does. Satan, his main argument, frustration, aim is against God. He despises all things that are God, all things that are good. And so because God loves people, you know that? You know that God loves you? Because God loves you, because God set his affection, his heart upon you, the devil's aim is to go after what God loves and to undo, to destroy, to sabotage, to ruin that which God loves. That's what he's up to. That's his aim. That's his tactic. And he uses all sorts of means and methods by which to do that. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, I alluded to this earlier. Here's what he says. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with waves, but with every wind of false doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness of deceitful schemes. That word deceitful schemes is the exact same word, deceitful methods. The devil uses these methods in this particular case by bringing in false teaching, false doctrine, false gospel, so that people will be deceived. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul also says this. He says, so that you would not be outwitted by Satan, we are not ignorant of his designs or his uh, tactics. The way that Paul is describing this, is basically making this prayer. He says, look, I don't want you as God's people to be unaware of the tactics of the devil. Pause for a second, just think about this. What are some of the tactics that the devil has employed in your life right now that he's actually leveling attacks in your life right now that you're completely oblivious to? You may just simply think, well, it's your roommate or it's your spouse or it's your mom or it's your dad or it's your children or it's your boss. But the reality is behind that, underneath that, there's an evil beneath that. That's what Paul is saying is that we are oftentimes simply far too easily satisfied by looking for cheap, superficial answers. And so because we don't really wrestle with the reality of what's going on, we don't go deep enough. We don't get to the real problem. In other words, we're busy simply addressing symptoms, but never really going to the root cause. So think about it this way. If you were a doctor, if you were to go to a doctor and, you know, you, let's say you had cancer, and the doctor's like, well, let me give you some Tylenol. You're like, thank you, but... I, I need probably, I don't know, chemo or something. You know, I don't know. Um, and, but the reality is, is that if all he's going to do is be like, well, this actually like cure your headache. Like, well, maybe my headache's caused by something worse. You know, it's like the reality is, is that would be not a good doctor. And oftentimes we as human beings simply deal with symptoms, but never really go deep enough to deal with the root cause. And what Paul is saying is that beneath oftentimes many of the Problems that are symptoms that we have in our life are these root causes that are actually influenced by demons. And what Paul says, I don't want you guys to be ignorant of those things. 
I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to be aware. I want you to be uh, in tune with what's going on. Now, before we jump in even any further, uh, the ancient uh, the Puritans from several hundred years ago, they basically had a way of kind of categorizing uh, a variety of ways by which uh, we as human beings are attacked. Uh, three ways. One is the world. The second is the flesh, the devil. So the world, uh, the Puritans would say that the world is sort of the system that we live in. There's a system that we live in, and oftentimes we're completely unaware of the system. We just sort of are part of it. It, it consumes us. We are sort of absorbed into the system. Be simply like kind of like asking a fish, you know, tell me a little bit about your culture, your environment. What's it like being water? Like a fish would not really know how to answer that. In the same way, if someone were to come up to you and be like, tell me a little bit about what it's like to live within an oxygenated world. They're like, I don't know. I like, I breathe and in oxygen and I, I, don't, I don't know what it feels like. It just is. In the same way, there's a system in this world and the way the system, this world works, we basically, in a lot of ways, just sort of uh, are, are shaped by that system. I heard um, there's kind of this, uh, maybe in Santa Maria, someone had told me that they'd seen something on the news where there were these little boxes, and uh, some grower was growing pumpkins in it. It was like the shape of Frankenstein's head, I guess. So he was growing these pumpkins into these boxes, so when the pumpkins were really young, then they began to grow into this you know, Frankenstein-shaped box. And so after they were, uh, you know, fully grown, they kind of were in the shape of this Frankenstein head. And this guy's, like, shipping them all around the world and his molds and so on and so forth. But the point of the matter is, is like, in a lot of ways, that's the way you and I are in this culture. We're, like, growing into this culture. We're being shaped by this culture. We don't really know it. What are some of the elements that are basically alive within this culture? Alive, but not necessarily giving life. Well, I think one of them is Vengeance. Um, is retaliation. In other words, when somebody does something to us, the default mode of our hearts and of our nature and of our culture is to figure out a way to retaliate. We do that overtly by, you know, fighting someone, punching them in the throat. Hopefully you don't do that. Or uh, subversively by, you know, unfriending them on Facebook or gathering together some of our friends and gossiping about them and trying to rally a team of people against them. So, those are various forms of vengeance and counterattack that this world is skilled at, which Jesus actually comes and says, I want to subvert that because that is actually the cause of destruction of those who bear my image. Jesus undoes that simply by saying, love your enemies. Pray for those that use you. Do you realize this little thing that we call the Sermon on the Mount, that a lot of us as Christians are like, oh, isn't it amazing? It's such a sweet little sermon. Do you realize how absolutely subversive it is to everything about our culture, everything about the way that we live? If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, that's cute. You didn't understand the Sermon on the Mount. I'm serious. You read it, but you didn't get it. Because if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you're not shocked by it, I mean, there's not passages that you read, you're like, that's ridiculous, that's offensive, then you didn't really fully understand it. You didn't hear it. The point of the matter is, is that we have a world around us, a culture within this world around us that is actually toxic. It's deathly, it's destructive. And we, by nature, oftentimes are shaped by this thing. We don't even know it. That's the world. The second thing is the flesh. 
And that's just the desires that we have inside of us. And these desires oftentimes mislead us and misguide us to do things that are actually not in design or not in order of God, not in the order of God. They don't lead to flourishing. They actually lead to our destruction, our brokenness. In the immediate sense, and perhaps even in an ultimate sense, where Jesus described it as that path that follows this world, that path that follows the flesh, ultimately leads to destruction. Jesus would say Gehenna, or hell, a place of destruction. So the point of the matter is, is that something needs to interrupt or interfere our path, our direction on that path, and that's what the gospel promises to do. The final thing is not only the world, the flesh, but then also the devil, and that's what we'll begin to take a look at. So the devil is something that we have to understand because he has tactics. He has methods by which to attack us. And I want to help you guys understand some of those methods. We're not going to go through all of them today. I've got a handful of them that we'll try to get through. We'll actually we'll only get through one right now, actually, because uh, first service I talk too much, um, which is a little bit of my habit. But the point of the matter is, uh, we'll just look at one of them today, and hopefully it'll be encouraging to you. But the point of the matter is, is that there'll be, over the next couple of weeks, we'll look at a series of tactics or methods by which the devil operates to overcome, to destroy, to ruin, to sabotage God's good work in our lives. Before we jump into that, what I want to do is I want to point out uh, and I want to nuance kind of this idea of demonic attack or spiritual attack. Um, And when I talk about demonic attack or the idea of the devil attacking us is I want to distinguish uh, common demonic from what I would describe as blatant demonic. In other words, most of us are pretty familiar with blatant demonic. You know, that's like when you walk downtown, you see some crazy guy his head spinning on his shoulders, or he's like levitating, or he's doing really things, he's really creepy, he's falling you down, you know, gum alley, and you're freaking out, like, this is demonic, like, like, it's easy to understand oftentimes and point out some of the blatant demonic, or you wake up from the middle of the night, and you're like sweating, uh, and you just had this gnarly dream of being chased by like something evil or wicked, you wake up, that was demonic, like, it's easy to identify a lot of the blatant demonic, but it's the common demonic that oftentimes destroys us the most. It's the common demonic that we really have to listen to and pay attention to and be aware of because when it comes, and it will come, it may even be on you right now that you'll be able to identify it and call it to God's strength and power to turn from it, to be rescued from it. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that God always promises to provide rescue to those that call upon the name of the Lord. Jesus says, they'll be saved. That's the beauty of this. So let's take a look at some of the common demonic. We'll just really look at one today. Um, And I'll kind of set this up really for the next couple weeks to come. But the first thing that I noticed as I was reading through this, and really uh, never gone through a thorough Bible study on the armor of God. I mean, it sounds kind of funny because, you know, a lot of times churches love to kind of capitalize on, you know, the six-week series on the armor of God, you know, and then comes a book deal and, you know, you know, goes on the radio and all this type of stuff. We've never done that before, actually, as a church. I mean, I've taught here for 21 years since I passed at the start of the church here, and I've never actually done a thorough teaching on the armor of God. And it was, so I was going through this and reading through it, I realized, like, th- these are absolutely amazing things. I think it's well worth our time to just devote some energy and unpacking it. We're not going to do that right now. We'll do that over the next several weeks to come, uh, minus the book deal. But the point of the matter is we'll focus on some of the things that Paul points out that behind each of these things that Paul basically gives as a remedy. So, for example, Paul says, hey, I want you to be strong in the Lord so that in this battle you're not overcome by the wicked one, but you are able to overcome the wicked one. 
And by the way, why don't you put on for yourself the belt of truth? Why does Paul describe it from the belt of truth? And there's a lot of reasons. You know, sometimes the common one is, is well, Paul is describing, you know, uh, you know, Roman soldier. But in reality, that's not what Paul is describing. Paul is actually calling to attention passages that actually come out of the book of Isaiah, surprisingly. And we'll, we'll get to that, um, getting ahead of myself a little bit. But why the belt of truth? Why truth is really the word I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm focusing on. Why truth? Why is Paul focusing on truth? Because... One of the most common forms of the devil's attacks is the opposite of truth, lies. And same thing, Paul's going to say um, the breastplate of righteousness. Clothe yourself in the breastplate of righteousness. You know, again, I'm not going to unpack righteousness right now. We'll get to that in the next couple of weeks. But why does Paul focus on righteousness? Because one of the ways in which the devil oftentimes attacks is simply through our unrighteousness, our living our lives in an unrighteous way. So I want to focus on each one of these things and realize that these are actually not only a remedy, but it's also calling to attention the, the, the various methods by which the devil attacks. So the first one we'll take a look at by, by the way in which he attacks are lies. The devil attacks us through lies. So again, take a look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. I'll read this really quickly. It says, therefore, stand having fastened on the belt of truth having fastened on the belt of truth. Do you know that one of the ways in which, why I think Paul is describing put on the belt of truth is because we by nature in this world, influenced by the devil, are subject, subjected to lies all the time. We believe lies. And when we believe those lies, those actually impact and affect the way that we live. Sometimes to the point of complete languishing in our lives. So let me give you an example. Let's say if there was a husband and wife, they were married. Let's say, let's say the wife had a background where she had relationship upon relationship by which her boyfriends in the past betrayed her and turned against her for other men. And now in this marriage, she's basically been conditioned upon this hurts from the past. Now in this marriage, if she at some point begins to believe that her husband is actually cheating on her, Let's just say the husband has done nothing but faithful to her all the time and has a track record of faithfulness and fidelity. But in her mind, she has begun to believe that he has actually been unfaithful to her. The question is, will that lie actually impact and affect the marriage? Yes or no? Absolutely. For sure it will. For sure it will. Because that lie will actually impact the ability of being able to trust each other. She won't be able to trust him. Even if it's not even real, it may just simply be perceived. And this kind of gets into something we'll look at over the next couple of weeks. But there are real things that can oftentimes happen, or there are perceived things that can oftentimes happen. And oftentimes, perceived things are just as powerful as real because they influence and they affect. So if somebody is living their lives under the influence of a non-truth, a.k.a. a lie, that will impact and affect your life. It will impact and affect the type or the quality of life that God intends for you to have. And if in an ultimate sense, say for example, you have believed lies about God, lies that are not true about God, and to the point where it has actually influenced your inability to actually trust God. So let's say, for example, if you had in your mind a notion whereby you believed God to be like a very frustrated, kind of use the analogy sometimes, like a very angry, very frustrated, very grumpy 
uh, landlord and you're the tenant that's not paid up on your debt. And if in your mind you think God is this grumpy landlord and you've not paid up on your debt and you're always worried about God looking for opportunity and occasion to evict you from his presence, will that impact and affect your ability to trust this God? Absolutely. But that's exactly what the devil wants. He wants to reshape the way that you think about God. That's one of the reasons why Jesus, when he came to his people, he says, listen, when you pray, pray like this, our Father, Abba, Daddy. What Jesus is actually doing, he's not only counteracting lies that have been promoted about the character and the nature of God, he's actually reshaping their understanding by the way of truth, showing them that God is not like a grumpy, angry landlord. God is not like a grumpy, angry Sadducee or Pharisee, always concerned about making sure that you get every jot uh, and tittle, crossed and dotted. God is not concerned about God. Is what, what God concern, is, is, is concerned about is that you know him as a father who loves you. That's what God cares about. But if you have your mind influenced to believe something other than that, that will impact and affect your ability to actually trust God. And you can go through all sorts of other variety of lies that we tend to believe within our lives and realize that this is exactly what happens. So for example, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul also writes, he says, the Spirit expressly says that in a lot of times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And in this particular context, Paul actually calls out and he says, look, any teachings that are other than the gospel, no matter how Biblical they may sound, no matter how much Jesus talk might be involved in it, no matter how much it may come out of the mouth of a pastor, if it's not focused on the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to rescue us, to set us free, is actually a teaching of the devil, teaching of demons. And Paul says, we've got to be careful of that. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, also Paul says, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts I'm concerned that you may also be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. So Paul's point is that I'm concerned for you guys because just as the devil deceived Eve away from confidence and trust in God, I'm concerned that you in your confidence and faith in God, confidence in what God's done for you through Jesus, will somehow shift to something other than that truth and that reality, and therefore you will be broken. You will lead be led to a place of languishing within your faith, your relationship with God. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus actually speaks, and here's what he says. Now again, Jesus, I think we'd all agree, is an authority, the authority on all of this. Now, you know, hopefully you agree Paul is an authority, but if you don't, hopefully you will, but the reality is Jesus is also an authority. Jesus is the authority. This is what Jesus actually has to say, his commentary on Satan himself. He says this, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He, that is Satan, he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of all lies. So what Jesus is basically saying is that Satan actually has a character. Satan has a method. Satan's method primarily is by way of lying, speaking lies to us, half-truths, untruths, non-truths somehow getting our minds to believe something other than the truth that Jesus actually says. And let me say one other thing. 
The truth is not just simply a set of principles we believe about God. The truth actually is better than that. The truth is actually a person. This is one of the reasons why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What Jesus means by that is the aim of Christianity is not for us to just simply memorize a bunch of principles, not to just simply memorize a bunch of laws and rules and regulations and therefore live as best as we can according to those things, but our aim is to know a person because it's relational. Now, let me give you an example. If, say, for instance, you were in a relationship, and let's just say it's a guy, and speaking to his wife, and he sits down with his wife and is just like, look, I know we just got married, but I just need to know what is it that you expect from me? Because whatever it is that you expect from me, I will do it all. And I just need to know what it is so we can just move forward from here. So what is it? You want flowers once a month? You want food and dinner maybe twice a week? What do you want from me? Tell me what you want from me and I will abide by those rules and regulations. Like, like that actually is a path to bring great insult upon that relationship. Don't ever do that, by the way. Like, some of you guys are like, oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe I'll like, like journal that right down and... No, don't do that. It's a horrible thing to do because that's actually an insult. It insults the relationship. Relationships only function and flourish based upon dialogue and relationship in that context. And so what really Jesus is saying is that the devil lies. His aim is always to lie. Jesus, on the contrary, basically says, I've come to reveal hearts to myself. I'm the way. I'm the truth. Jesus would also say, you shall know the truth. The truth will actually set you free. That truth is what actually liberates our hearts, liberates our souls, so that rather than being mastered and bound by something that brings oppression and crushing and destruction, Jesus says, I want to set you free so that you will flourish, so that your life will become something that overflows with who God is. That's life. This is what Jesus invites us into. This is what Jesus calls us to. So the question is, is what are the lies, perhaps, that you've believed? What are the things maybe about God that you believe that are actually inconsistent with the nature of God? So some of you might ask the question, well, what's God like? I always wrestle with what God is like. I got really good news for you today because we can tell you exactly what God's like. Because this is one of the most amazing things about the gospel is that what we see is that the gospel points us to not a set of principles that I already alluded to, but to a person. And Jesus says, everything that you've ever wondered about God and maybe even been confused about God can be summarized in me. If you've seen me, you've seen God. You've seen the Father. Do you realize how good news that is? Because some of us all our lives have been wrestling with, well, what is God like? Will God love me? Will God accept me? Will God care for me? Will God kick me to the curb? Will God be offended by my life? Will God shun me? Will God eject me out of heaven? And the answer to all those questions is, what, how did Jesus treat sinners? How did Jesus treat people that recognized their brokenness? In every instance, he accepted them. He loved them. This is who God is. You need to see that truth. You may be believing lies about other people. And those lies that you may be believing about other people. It's one of the reasons why slander and gossip, by the way, are so bad. Because what slander and gossip is, is basically gathering together people 
to side with your side of the story uh, with the specific aim to uh, sabotage someone else's character. And the problem with that is, for one, we don't always have all the answers. For two, that person that you're trying to slander and sabotage is actually, just like you, an image bearer of God. Therefore, they deserve dignity, value, and respect. That's why one of the most honoring, respectful things to do is to go to that person and ask them questions of clarification. Hey, I heard something going around. Did you say this? You know how many times, I mean, have you ever had someone come to you and say that, like, hey, I heard something that maybe you were saying, and after that, you're just like, you know, thank you for coming to me. Thank you for not, like, blogging about it or throwing something up on Facebook and sending, you know, a newsflash around about how lame I am. Thank you for coming to me and asking me about that. That shows honor and respect and value to me. So thank you. Think about how that truth can set us free in relationships and how oftentimes believing lies about other people actually brings destruction. This is why truth is so important. This is why Paul is going to ultimately say, and we'll look at this in a couple weeks actually, gird yourself with the belt of truth because the problem is one of the devil's number one tactics is lies. What are the lies you have believed, what are the lies that you are currently believing that are actually bringing about brokenness, languishing, destruction, ruin within your life? What I want to do right now is I want to finish. Um, I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And what I want to do is I want to actually engage with each other in just a moment of prayer. Um, Paul finishes his whole little section right here. He says, uh, and in all things, pray. So I don't want to simply talk about that. Well, that's a great thing to do. Let's, let's actually do that because what I'm afraid is that we can actually read passages like this and nod our head in agreement and be like, yes, lies are bad. Yes, truth is important. Yes, prayer is awesome. And, and yet we basically nod in agreement, but in reality our, our hearts are really far from engaging with that. And therefore we may have one foot in to the kingdom of God, but the rest of our body is sort of outside because we're, we're, we're a little bit skittish and skeptical, maybe even critical or cynical as to how and why in the ways in which God may want to move and work. So what I want to do is I want to invite you to pray. What we'll do is we'll break up into little groups of threes, maybe six, and just gather together. If you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you're a brand new Christian, uh, don't feel, you don't have to pray, all right? Some of you are like, oh my gosh, do I have to pray out loud? No, you don't have to. If, if you'd like to, you're more than welcome to. But what I want to encourage you to do is, is maybe if that's you, um, you, can just, you can just be silent and you don't even have to say anything. But the rest of the other people in the group, maybe just pray out loud, pray for each other. But here's what I want you to pray for. I want you to pray for each other that we would be people that would have ears that are given to truth. Pray for our church that we would be a church that knows how to identify and to avoid lies and ultimately so that we promote truth. God's word, God's truth, the gospel. That that would be what our lives about. That we'd be what sets not only us free, but is used by God through our lives to set others free. So if you're here and maybe there are circumstances in your life as you break up in these little groups and you feel as if you're somebody that has been plagued by lies. They've crushed you to the point where you've been oppressed and ruined and broken. You don't even have to say anything to the group. Maybe just say, can, can you pray for me? That's me. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to go into any reasons why. Just have people pray for you. We really believe that what God calls us to is to love one another, serve one another, and join with him on mission. And that mission 
pushing back the darkness begins now. I don't know how you define or think about pushing back darkness, but the way I think the gospel defines it really clearly is we push back darkness by first of all bringing truth into every area and letting that expose darkness, letting that expose lies. God wants to set us free. He wants to use us to help others to be set free. This is the beauty of the gospel. And the reason why we can do this, the reason why we can be vulnerable with God and with others is because what the gospel is, is it's this story that points to us about our God that rather than crush us because of the lies that we believed about him, he had every right to, he comes and says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you that every lie you've ever had about me is false. And I'll prove it to you, not by telling you I love you, but by showing you the depth of my love. I will be crushed for you. I will bear your penalty for you. And in exchange, I will give you my life. And I'll be crushed. This is the God that we can trust. He makes himself vulnerable. Therefore, we can be vulnerable to him.